Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, bring you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1974, uh, there was a magazine at that time called Eternity Magazine, and uh, there was an article that appeared in the July issue that was entitled, The Book That Would Understand Me, by a French philosopher and academic by the name of Emile Cayet. And now, Cayet was uh, also a, a World War I vet, and, and he, he kind of dealt with the brunt of some of the worst stuff in the war. He was wounded in the war. He was engaged in trench warfare. And, you know, when he came home, you know, at the time, nobody had any uh, tools for reintegration or PTSD hadn't even been sort of identified yet. And so he was dealing with this trauma, and he felt like the way I'm going to deal with my trauma is to throw myself back into all the books that have nourished me in my life. That had meant so much to me. Uh, and yet, as he read the books, they didn't seem the same to him. They didn't provide him what they provided before and the, and, the, and the same satisfaction and the joy and the meaning and the assurance that they once had for him. And he really wrestled through this period. And he, and he wrote that he was longing for something that he, that he couldn't find and he couldn't quite identify it. Uh, he was trying to find a book that he'd understand, but then he realized, no, no, that's not it. What, what, I, what I was looking for, what I was longing for, is a book that would understand me. But he kept on. He kept pouring through volume after volume. He said this was a time of probing in depth for meaning. And exhausted, he finally said, well, that, this book is not out there, so I'm going to write it. And he got a little leather notebook. He, just, he started making entries into it, things that he felt spoke to the truth of his condition in order to produce a book that would, in the end, uh, you know, answer all of the deepest questions and struggles of life. And then he finally finished. And he, it, and he decided on a beautiful sunny day to go read it under a tree. Uh, and as he sat under that tree on this beautiful day, what came over him he described as growing disappointment. Uh, because all it did was remind him of his despair and of his struggle. And, and it was actually while he was sitting under the tree, with the growing disappointment deepening in his heart, his wife, who'd been out on a walk with the baby in a stroller, came back, found him under the tree, and, and you know, they kind of caught up, and she said, you know, what are you doing? What did, what did you do? And she said, well, you know, I was out on my walk, and the minister gave me a Bible. And he immediately jumped up, grabbed the Bible without saying anything else to her. This is the way he tells the story. And he ran into his study, and he opened it to the Gospels, and he read deep into the night. And he recalls that evening, and here's what he says in this article. He said, lo and behold, as I look through the Bible, the one of whom these Gospels spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them became alive to me. The providential circumstances amid which the book had found me now made it clear that while it seemed absurd to speak of a book understanding a man, this could be said of the Bible because its pages were animated by the presence of the living God and the power of his mighty acts. To this God I prayed that night, and the God who answered was the same God of whom it was spoken in the book. We started a new series uh, in one of these Gospels last week, in this Gospel of Mark. And, and, and I want to say perhaps more than any book in the Bible, Mark's Gospel is composed 
with this very sensibility in mind. That is to say, you know, we, it is the most urgent, the most insistent of all four of the Gospels. It's not merely a kind of then and there account of Jesus as a person of history, but a here and now account of Jesus as living and alive and relevant to your life right now. This gospel is written in the present tense, and it's meant to be read in the present tense as, as relevant to your life and mine. It is a gospel that insists that we take up as, as a matter of great urgency the truth that Jesus is the living Lord. So like the rest of the Bible, it's given to us. It's composed not only as a book that, that we would understand, that we would interpret, that, but as a book that understands us as a book that interprets us. And, and that, that comes through in the very first verse, which we looked at last week. And I, I'm returning to it because I think it's so critical to, to the rest of this series and to our life and to reading all the Bible. And, the, and that verse is this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, Mark puts that before us as a, matter of first importance, as a truth we'd better not move past, ever. Not in this series, not in the Bible, not in our lives. Jesus Christ, Son of God. Now, in Christian circles, those terms can lose their potency because they are so familiar, maybe overly familiar. I mean, you wouldn't be blamed if you saw Jesus Christ, you know, even after spending a lot of time in church and thought, well, this is his first and last name. But the Heidelberg Catechism actually takes great pains to explain what you and I are saying when we are saying Jesus Christ, especially zeroing in on this term Christ as it is applied to Jesus as a title. And so when, so when you and I say this, we, we are affirming that he, and this is how the Catechism puts it, has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Jesus came with a purpose, with, with, with a task to be fulfilled by God, which is, as the Catechism puts it, to reveal to us His will concerning our redemption. But it's, it's what Mark says next about Jesus. I mean, not only that He is Christ, uh, or Messiah, and, and, and people had a category for that. But, but it's when he says son of God, you know, that kind of blows all the categories. Uh, and, and, and Mark doesn't just move on from that, but brings in scriptures from Malachi and Isaiah that we might meditate on what it means that he is son of God. And that we would make room, make way for him in our lives. Um, you know, so we're introduced to John the Baptist, who's identified, even before we get his name, as the voice calling out in the desert to clear the way, to, to make way for the Lord. You know, I think we sang at Christmas, you know, one of the Christmas songs that says, let every heart prepare him room. You know, that, that is to say the person of Jesus, you know, because of who he is, ought to have the effect of kind of rearranging life. Get ready. You know, and I think I've said it before, you know, it's kind of this idea of, you know, the Queen of England, everywhere she goes, she smells fresh paint. Because no one goes, well, the Queen's showing up, I'll vacuum tomorrow. 
No. Make, make room, make way. Your life is about to get rearranged, right? Let every heart prepare him room that we would know that the coming of Jesus is the coming of God himself to, his, to save his people. That's his person. That's his purpose. So we're going to look at three things about Jesus as he makes his way to us this morning through this word. His person, his purpose, and then thirdly, his pleasure. Person and purpose and pleasure. We started off with Jesus. We, we start off here with Jesus being baptized in, in, by John in the Jordan River. And we're told, uh, we're given many details about this event. We're told that when he came up out of the water, uh, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Um, the first detail I want to look at here is Jesus is baptized and the spirit of God is described as descending like a dove. Um, that's a really important detail. Uh, it's because in Genesis 1, in Genesis 1-2 in particular, this same spirit is described as hovering over the water at the beginning of creation. Um, the, the Hebrew word there literally means to flutter. Um, and some of the earliest translators of this text, the text that would have been read in synagogue in Jesus' day, that people would have been very familiar with, was rendered this way, that the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the waters, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. And God spoke, let there be light. Now, that like a dove is not in the Hebrew, but, but they're unpacking, they're describing what the Spirit's like in the fluttering, okay? Like a dove. And, and that connection, that language here, and what's, what's happening in Jesus' baptism would... And would necessarily cause everyone to, to sit up and take notice and see that connection. It, it, and that speaks to the purpose of the coming of Jesus because, because it's connecting us to a creation story. So, so you'd see this and you'd go, there's creation stuff going on at Jesus' baptism. New creation stuff. You know, and, and, and inextricably bound up in the purpose of this work, again, is the person doing the work. Now, I have to say, you know, one of the highlights of my week here is our staff meeting, and, you know, certainly because I love our staff. It really is a gift to work with a staff of people that you, that you like being around. Um, but, you know, when we get together, more often than not, we've, all, we've not only got our staff with us, we've got little, you know, not quite two-year-old Eleanor Brenner in our staff meeting. And, you know, Eleanor's got some words, um, but most of her communication is nonverbal. Um, most of it comes by way of showing us things, um, bringing us things, things that are clearly very important to her, things that I think, you know, she's kind of saying, I want you to know me a little better. And, you know, like last week, I had my legs crossed, and, you know, and she came, and she, I don't know if you know Eleanor, but she's often got her little stuffed dog, and um, she came, and she put that little dog on my shoe. And... Um, you know, she's just, I think, kind of making a connection there. She's showing something really important to me, her little dog. And, you know, and that's how kids are, right? I mean, you know, from the earliest days that they, they want you to know their story about who they are and what they're doing and what's important to them and what's loved by them, they show you. Just before church this morning, a few minutes ago, I had a child in this church show me something very important to her, a drawing she did. 
You know, they show you their toys, their rooms, their drawings. They show you their bumps and their bruises. You know, and, and even though, as, as we'll see in a minute, words are spoken at Jesus' baptism, at the same time, there's a lot of showing going on. God's showing us who he is. He's showing us how he is, what he loves, what he finds of greatest worth. And, and central to what he's showing us is this story of a new creation, where, where just like in Genesis 1, there is God, and there's God's Spirit, and there's the Word in, in the person of Jesus bringing this creation into being. You know, and further filling out the picture, making the connection, are, the, are, are waters, waters of Jesus' baptism. Um, you know, and it's tempting to look at this, you know, as we make this connection to go, okay, I get it. Um, Genesis 1 is the IMAX 70 millimeter Dolby surround sound movie of creation. And Mark 1 is the direct-to-streaming iPad earbud version with Jesus in a river with his cousin and a few onlookers. Right? But, but actually, it's exact reverse. And what I mean is what happened in creation was more like the preview that you might watch on your phone before you go into the, the great unfolding of the, the huge revelation, the 70-millimeter Dolby surround sound IMAX picture that is Jesus' baptism. What happened in creation was the preview, the trailer, the thing that points us to the deeper meaning, the relationship that brought creation all about, not just the playing out of creation, but its purpose of creation, the person behind it, more fully revealed than ever. Because here, you know, the chaotic waters over which the Lord is bringing to bear creation, the new creation, isn't just the waters of the Jordan. We're not really fully getting it if we think that's it, this river. It's actually, you know, um, much bigger than that. It's affecting new creation over a chaotic churning of the ocean of a fallen humanity. That's the waters. That's the chaos. That's the reality into which God is bringing new order, a new humanity. Now, if you were to look up uh, in a book of theology um, the topic of the Trinity, it would take you to this text. This is a classic text on uh, showing us that God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, you know, and the Trinity is a challenging concept. Um, it is. And, you know, if we're to understand it, uh, we have to connect purpose and person and pay attention again to what God's showing us about himself. And, you know, I think it's important to just cover this a little bit. I feel like it's insufficient. I'm scratching the surface. But, but we need to say what it's not. And, and, and for starters, it's not three separate gods. You know, God's cooperating with each other as separate persons. Um, it's not tritheism. It's not shape-shifting either. It's not, you know, God manifesting himself in various modes or uh, you know, being one thing one minute and another thing another. It's not what, what theologians would call modalism. It is instead God revealing himself as three persons present and working and relating in such a way that is distinct and also wholly unified. You know, the little, the little bit of overseas missions work I've done in my life um, has all been in um, Muslim contexts. I've had many opportunities to share my faith with Muslims and, and in those conversations, very often with a language barrier in play. Um, you know, the person I'm talking to, for, for starters, they'll hold up their index finger, you know, which is better than other fingers that you could hold up. <laughs> but what are they, you know, what, they're hold, they hold up that finger. And, and, and essentially what they're saying, you know, in, in all those conversations, they're saying, look, before we say anything else, 
Before I allow you to go on, affirm for me there is one God. And I would always say, absolutely, there is one God. Yes, we believe in one God too. The Lord is God. Uh, not, more than, not, not more one than three, not more three than one, but one God in three persons. The same in substance, equal in power and glory, as our confession puts it. So he reveals himself in that way at creation, and he continues to reveal himself that way in all of scriptures and, and here in the work of the new creation through Jesus. Okay? And again, that's, that's, that's heavy doctrine. Um, I, would love to, you know, I, I would love to talk to you about that further and, and, and tell you, you know, that is not only the thing that God reveals about himself at, at the beginning of the scriptures and at the beginning of the gospels, but throughout the scriptures. Um, but, but I don't want to just get bound up in heavy doctrine because what I think we're really needing to see here is delight. There's delight in this. This relationship within the Godhead is fundamentally one of pleasure. It's pleasure. Where, where what's occurring in God is ongoing, mutual, eternal, pleasing of the other. Honoring of the other, elevating the other. The theologian Cornelius Plantica zeroes in on this when he says that the persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. You know, and that Trinitarian reality affects for Jesus what I want to call a Trinitarian baptism, which is to say, you know, he's not merely immersed in, in the Jordan. He is also immersed in the Father's love and delight and approval. You are my beloved son and you I'm well pleased. And he's immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit who delights to give himself wholly and unreservedly to Jesus. You know, it, it, that's the Trinitarian picture. It reveals a Trinitarian purpose, and that purpose fundamentally is one of relationship. I don't think it's overstating it to say that for all that God is, He is always relationship. His nature is a mutual, ongoing centering on the other, uh, adoring the other, perpetually delighting in the other, honoring the other, since you know, we were created by him since we bear his image and we're made for relationship with him. That means that a fundamental reality of, of who we are is that we are made for relationship with him. And by extension, with one another. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not a philosopher, but, you know, if you were to ask me to define what is a human being, I would say a creature made for relationship. And man, you know, I just want to go, is anything more sort of lucidly, potently, and painfully revealed that to us than this pandemic? You know, the, the difficult pain of lockdowns and isolation and separation and distancing, right? You know, and, and, there, and setting aside for a moment... <laughs> God help us, setting aside for a moment the very important discussion of the, the, the necessity of those things, the importance of the measures of lockdowns and isolation and separation and distancing. You know, the one thing we can all agree on is nobody likes it, and nobody wants to live that way, not for very long, right? 
Because we need each other. We need fellowship. We need to be known. We need to be bound up in one another's lives in such a way that there is a real nearness. You know, I got to thinking about this, and I just thought, never in my life did I think I would miss, you know, the smell of Sunday morning coffee breath from other church members. But I do. I miss it. You know, and I, I just want to say to whatever extent, you know, that, that, that you've endured this, uh, depend, having to depend on yourself, I'm sorry. You know, um, and I'm sorry for, for uh, you know, how, how readily we focus on our own good and our own comfort and our own fulfillment with, with little consideration for others. I'm sorry about that, too. Because we, we feel the brokenness that comes you know, when we try to live as we were never meant to live, you know, and the reason we were never meant to live like that is God is nothing like that. He's not self-focused. He doesn't, you know, he, the self-focused life, the life lived on its own terms by its own rules for its own pleasure, refusing to submit to and serve God and one another, never ever giving yourself away for the good of others, that's treacherous. And this is why, you know, community and, and, and hear me on this, community is not merely being in the same place at the same time or being members of the same church. I mean, and it, those things are significant. But a community that reflects the depth that is conveyed as we look at the person and character of the living God, you know, that will always be central to our vision. That's where we're pursuing. That's what we're pursuing here. You know, to our vision and our mission, our philosophy as a church, we want to cultivate that and build around that. Um, you know, where we're honoring each other, where we're communing with one another, where we're living in deference to one another, one in which we, you know, to use planting as language, where we harbor others at the center of our being, where there is a constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person enveloping and encircling the others, overflowing with regard for one another. It's enticing, isn't it? We want to see that in everything we do as a church as a sign and as an enjoyment and as a delight that we are living in the enjoyment of receiving from the living Lord this relationship, who he is with one another, deepening in the gospel, depending on the gospel. Sunday mornings, this is, this is the animus behind our community group vision that everyone would be a part of that. It's, 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 it undergirds youth ministry, Christian education, local and global missions. It undergirds our leadership everywhere. And look, you know, I, I want to acknowledge that will, that will be challenging for us. It's not easy. Um, I, I'm, I'm aware that for some of us that might even be a little offensive. And how can it not be? Because you know, ours is a culture that prizes personal autonomy. Personal freedom at all costs. Personal autonomy at all costs. You know, if, if we, to the degree that we speak of rights, it's almost always in terms of that which we will assert or that which we will protect and almost never in terms of that which we're willing to give away for the good of others. You know, and yet, you know, I want to acknowledge uh, whether you like it or not, you're always giving yourself away. I am too. We're just hardwired for it. We can't help it. We, you know, we, we, we've been in the thick of the NFL playoffs, right? And, and, you know, I never hear anyone talk about their favorite team and go, well, yeah, they won. Or, yeah, it's a bummer they lost. It's always we won or we lost. 
you know, even though the actual fact, fact of the matter is that, you know, those who are actually in good shape and practice and pad up, they're the ones who won and lost. But, but no one talks or thinks that way. And the reason we don't is because we give ourselves away. We're hardwired uh, to attach ourselves to that thing which we imagine to be glorious, which is bigger and faster and stronger and greater and gets the victory. You know, we find joy in giving away ourselves and attaching to the glory and the accomplishment and the victory of another, right? I mean, this is why in 1992, when I saw Michael Jackson in concert as a 20-year-old, he turned me into a seventh grade girl for two hours. <laughs> why? Because I was giving myself to the glory. There was no concern for myself. You know, we just as human beings can never settle for being adjacent. We want in. We want into the glory. We want into the beauty and the fullness. And it kind of kills us to stand outside of it because we know that we're most alive and free and fulfilled when we give ourselves away. And we do it all the time and a whole lot of it's tragic. A whole lot of it's really broken because we give ourselves away to those things that are all too finite, that are all too fleeting, and not as fulfilling as they should be. They can't be because they're not God. And, and we still, we try to enter the glory of the money and the career and the reputation and my kids and the success and a million other things, and you know, none of which are bad in themselves, but all of which are very treacherous when you imagine them to be the glory. They're not. They're reflections of it. They're just a taste of what God has on offer in enjoying perfectly for all eternity a relationship with him through Jesus. Now, that's a lot to take in. And Mark doesn't leave us much time to kind of sit there because he, he moves on. It's, it's kind of jarring to see how abruptly, you know, he does. The words, in you I am well pleased, are kind of still ringing in the ears. And then we just find out Jesus is immediately driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, now we've had the baptism and we're on to the next thing. But, but here's the thing. These things are strongly connected. The, the waters of Jesus' baptism have everything to do with the wilderness of Jesus' temptation. Uh, the echoes of the creation account continue um, and, and in some ways intensify and help us to make sense of this. Because in that story, right on the heels of the Spirit moving over the waters... God speaking creation into existence come Adam and Eve uh, as the culmination, as the crown of creation. And, and, and where are they? They are, they are in fellowship with God. They are dwelling with him perfectly and pleasingly. The, the words aren't actually spoken, but the reality is there. And you, I am well pleased. And then Satan enters. Satan enters the garden and, and, and he enters with a test, uh, with a temptation for Adam and Eve. And they fail it and they're driven out. And so here, right on the heels of the triune God ushering in the new creation and the baptism of Jesus, in, in, immediately on the heels of this rich, fulfilling experience of delightful fellowship with God, what happens? Jesus is driven out. He's driven out to be what? Tested. By who? Satan. In the wilderness. And, and Mark provides us this little detail. No, none of the other Gospels give this detail, but Mark does. Um, and he says, Jesus was in the wilderness with the wild animals. And you kind of wonder, what's up with that detail? Well, we pointed out that Mark's Gospel, you know, is famously punctuated with this word immediately, not just to make it action-packed, but to communicate, I think, relevance. 
uh, pertinence to our lives, to the present moment. It's not just immediately, there is immediacy to the gospel in all those immediately's. You see, when Mark wrote this gospel, there were a lot of Christians who had, were having wilderness experiences. They'd been driven out, driven out of their homes, out of their professions, out of their, out of their um, everything that was familiar and a support to their life. They were being driven into the wilderness of persecution for believing in Jesus, with not a few of them being thrown to the wild animals. And with persecution like that comes, you know, all kinds of temptations. We know this. Temptations to doubt God's love, his care, his power. Temptations to walk away from the faith. Certainly for these people, temptations to just melt back into the old life. The ocean of Roman idolatry and unbelief. The ocean of American idolatry and unbelief. Mark is asking us to see Jesus' trial, in other words, his temptation, his wilderness, as connected to my own. That means we ought to pay attention here to how he endures it. The, the drama centered on Jesus, and Jesus goes out like a second Adam, who's, who's just experienced deep, delightful fellowship with God, but now is met with potentially devastating threat to that relationship. So, so this, this wilderness experience is, is connected. It's not random. It's not meaningless. He doesn't stumble from the baptism to the boonies. He's not taking a detour away from, from the important business of ministry. And in fact, you see that because he doesn't, you know, the spirit, we are told, drove him there, led him there into that wilderness, which means that Jesus' ministry doesn't start when he comes out of the desert. It means that he's doing ministry in the desert. Jesus is doing ministry in the wilderness, entering into and undergoing the same test with the same tempter who was there in the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam made in fellowship with God, for fellowship with God, living in fellowship with God, undergoing a trial, a temptation, and, and, and of course, failing to our ruin. And, and since these parallels are so strong, we've got to pay attention not only to the fact that Adam faced the trial, but, but actually the kind of trial he faced. Um, Adam, of course, was commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you die. And, you know, that, there's not a lot there. Inquiring minds want to know, what's up with the command to not eat of the tree, other than not dying? But, but no explanation beyond that is given. We're, we're left simply with God's command to obey him about the tree. Um, and, and, you know, people I've talked to, I've taught this in Sunday school classes and various settings, and, you know, a lot of folks are just like, this is just one more example of a capricious, random, overly harsh command of the Lord that makes no sense. I mean, couldn't he just do us a solid and kind of explain the point, right? Why should I obey? Other than not dying, what's the point of this? But here's what I want to tell you. The key to understanding the command is actually in the non-explanation about the tree. It's in accepting God's command as it is, without further explanation than what he's given. And here's why that's so critical. Were God to say, obey the tree command, and here's why. Not only will you not die, but you're going to get all these other benefits, and X, Y, and Z. Um, once, 
it, it gets put in, in, and construed in those kinds of terms, th that entirely changes the relationship. You know, in other words, if, if, you, if your obedience is, I will obey if and only when sufficient reasons are given and sufficient benefits are presented to me um, so that I will um, be assured that things will go well for me, you are now in a relationship with God you know, in which he has become a means to an end. He, he's no longer God. He is gimme. Give me reasons. Give me guarantees. Give, you know, give me, give me the whole picture. Um, all of which are in direct proportion to my, you know, reluctance to trust him. You know, because I got a way out to see if this is going to work for me. So if obedience only makes sense in terms of what I get out of it, my apprehension of God changes so radically that he ceases to become God and he has now become my vending machine. And I cease to become a worshiper and I now become a customer. And I'm a terrible customer. You know, and I'm thrust into a de the deadly existence once again of that which is worse for me, which is a life centered around me forever outside of the pleasures he, is, he has on offer for us. And not just, you know, getting the things I feel like I may want and need, but, but getting him. And, and here's the thing. If you're, if you're like me, again, you know, you just can't help it. You know, I am forever Bob Wiley to Dr. Leo Marvman and what about Bob? I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. Right? I struggle to trust him. I am perpetually unconvinced that he's enough. I need my reasons. I need to know what I'm going to get out of it. And I will decide in the end what I believe to be best for me. I am my father's son. I look like Adam. And that, you know, in a nutshell, is what's tragic about me. And I think tragic about you. And tragic about everybody. And here's the reality. Satan hasn't stopped with the whispering the lie that he whispered in Eden. He whispers it here. I had a seminary professor who said, you know, Satan rumbles through this place 10 times a day. Whispering the lie. The idea that trusting in the self-giving love of God, giving yourself over to it completely, finding fullness of life, not in yourself, but in him. You know, the idea, we just kind of always say, that's never going to work and it's never going to be enough for me. So I'm going to pluck, you know, whatever little bit of fruit off the tree of life I can while the getting's good. You know, and left to ourselves, we, of course, are in terrible trouble. But, but hear the good news. The gospel tells us, and this story shows us, we are not left to ourselves. Jesus writes himself into the story. Jesus goes into the wilderness that has wrecked all of us where he will take on the trial and the temptation that Adam failed and that we are doomed to fail, that separates us from our Father, that, that keeps us from the delight, that always keeps us adjacent and never gets us in. And Mark never says exactly what the temptation is, but the picture gets filled out in Matthew's gospel. And, 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 and the essence of it is no different um, than the essence of Adam's temptation. And the essence of it is simply this. You must quit trusting God for everything. You must instead exert your own power 
Instead of waiting on him, consider yourself for once. Think about your own glory. Make your own life. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. Now, there might be a little heading in your Bible identifying these few verses as Jesus' temptation, temptation in the wilderness, but it's a mistake to think that his, his wilderness was confined to just these two verses because it was the entirety of his life and ministry. He, he for, for all his days, bore up under the weight of our human temptation every minute, every day, all the way to the cross, and yet without sin. You see, God told Adam in the garden to trust him, to obey him, to, 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 to obey me about the tree. And, and Adam failed. He lost that battle for Satan and the disaster uh, we bear to this day. But the good news is it doesn't end with Adam. God sent Jesus for us. He told him to trust and obey him in his battle with Satan in the wilderness. And he also told him critically to trust him about the tree. Jesus agonized over a tree. He agonized over a tree in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, the tree of the cross. He, he wrestled mightily with this call to trust the Lord about that tree. And guess what he did? What Adam failed to do and what you and I could never do, Jesus did. And because he did, I can come to him weak and wounded, sick and sore with failings and doubts and troubles. And I can look to him and I can lean on him and I can center on him to be my success and my, fail and, and my fulfillment and, and my savior. Because not only did he succeed, he succeeded for me. Succeeding where I failed, obeying where I disobeyed, trusting where I, I can't trust, enduring you know, yet one more immersion, and that was the terrible immersion into God's wrath for sin, which should have swallowed us up, but which instead, because he took that for us, became our rescue. And because of him, because of his saving work and fulfilling all righteousness under the law and enduring all wrath for sin for our disobedience, we, you and me, by faith in Jesus, can be immersed Immersed in the power of the Spirit, immersed in the love of the Father. And we can take these same words spoken of Jesus at his baptism from the Father, we can take them as our own. That we would hear, because of our faith in Jesus, you, you are my beloved. And with you, I am well pleased. Let's remember those words as we come to the table this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, you're a great Savior. Um, some of the, when we, when we really reckon with our struggles, the reality of them, um, the depth of our unbelief, um, how readily we go back to the broken cisterns, how easily we turn to the old idols, how often, you know, we um, believe the old lie that uh, you can't be trusted. Jesus, you, you step in. Not, not merely as an inspiration, but as our sufficiency so that we would know that, you know, however great our sin is, your grace is greater still. We are immersed in it. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you came for sinners. That is us, and you have rescued us. Um, so we thank you, Lord. Attend to us at this table. 
Uh, it's tempting for us even to come to your table, which you have clearly told us what this is. Um, it's still tempting for us to come here, you know, with, with a lot of reservations to kind of think, well, this week hadn't been good. And you know about it. And you're sick of it. And, and we kind of want to stay away. But the gospel speaks a better word. Because it says, you know everything about us. You know our struggles. And that, in fact, is critical to us understanding that we don't come to this table to meet your demands. We come wrapped in Christ who has met all the demands. So we can come here and you urge us to come hungry and thirsty, that we would be fed. That we would not continue the adjacent life, but that we would come in. Come to your table. Sit there. Eat and drink. Lord, delighting in you as enough, as more than enough. And in fact, when we're in you, all of these pleasures that we try to steal life from, they become even more pleasurable because they're not disconnected from you. And we're not trying to find life in them. We're getting to enjoy life in you. So Lord, attend to us as we come to this table. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for, our, for Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who saves us from our sins and who gives us life and life abundant. It's in his name we pray. Amen.